morning again. I think this, uh, these fumes are uh, getting to me at the moment. I see two Eddies this morning. I think it's a bit of a... That's a problem. Anyway. God bless you all. It's, been, uh, it's a privilege to be sharing God's Word with you again. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our look at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope you're, you're all ready for this message. Our hearts are going to be ready for it. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read from verse 1 to 12 this morning. Let's read. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this blessed time. We can come and, and, and look into your word. And be taught of your spirit. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be ready for that teaching. That we'd be opened, that our minds would be prepared. And Lord, that we would seek to learn that you might be glorified further in our lives. That we would be conformed more to the image of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself willingly for us. Father, that we might learn of him and be more like him is our prayer this morning. And Father, I pray that you would use me for this purpose. That you would... Use me to be able to encourage my brethren here to seek a life of greater depth with you. So we ask this morning that the name of our Saviour would be lifted up, that you would be glorified through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You remember when I started preaching this uh, series of uh, messages, I started saying, or one of the main points I wanted us to understand, were that these characteristics that we look at, and we've been looking at sort of one at a time, or one or two at a time, um, are not to be seen really in isolation. But what they are is a declaration by Christ about the characteristics of the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And this is the, these are the characteristics that are, that are displayed and possessed by the citizens of that kingdom. In other words, what's it like to live where God is king? What's it like? Um, I was a bit of a chat this morning or talk this morning about you know, going overseas and wanting to see what other, other countries are like. And most of us, many of us, have been overseas, haven't we? We've seen what other countries are like and we see the... And it, we see the... Um, the Apart from using the word flavour or, or, or atmosphere or whatever it is, each country 
and each uh, people has a particular type of characteristic, don't they? And, and most of these countries, and I mean, I, I come from, uh, I wasn't born overseas, but my, my background's Italian, and I know that the, the, the culture in Italy is different to the culture over here. And the culture, and the culture in, even in New Zealand, would be different to the way it is here. And in fact, if you go from Victoria to, to South Australia, you'll find the culture slightly different over there than what it is here. Each, it seems, each people in each area have developed a particular characteristic which epitomises the type of society they have. So when we look at these characteristics, what, what we're actually saying, or what the Lord's teaching, is that if you were to live in God's kingdom, where, in a place where every person that's living there says, he's our king, and they truly believed it in their heart, this is what it will be like. These are the characteristics that would epitomise that kingdom. And in fact, it doesn't just tell us about the citizens of that kingdom, it tells us what the king is like himself. There's one thing I've learned in business about um, what they call uh, the company culture. And company, company culture, or the culture of a particular business, really starts from the top. Because if the, if the leadership of that particular company is nasty, then it flows all the way down to everyone else. If the leadership of that, if of that business is a particular way, then people will begin to emulate and copy that. And that's the way it is in our society as well. Our leaders are the examples and, the, and they set the tone for the way our country behaves. And people, wittingly or unwittingly, actually begin to copy the way they are. They become our examples. And in this, in this way, when we speak about the kingdom of God, when we speak about these characteristics, what we're saying is God is like this. This is God's character. And if you were a citizen in that kingdom, and that was the only kingdom that you knew, and we don't live in that kingdom now because we are citizens of that kingdom, but we don't live in that kingdom. Okay, we are, we are actually, the Bible calls ambassadors. So we are away from our country. We are away from the, the kingdom of God. But one day we will be in that kingdom. The Bible says that God is the perfect example of what that kingdom represents. And that kingdom was perfectly shown by Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. He showed us exactly what that kingdom was like. The character, the mood, the qualities. So, as we continue to look through these things, I want you to understand... These aren't things that you should be striving for, thinking that you're going to get a merit because I'm going to, I'm going to try to be merciful this week. It doesn't work like that. When a person becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God, he should possess all of these qualities, all at the same time. And you may have them to varying degrees, but the goal is to, to encourage those characteristics to come out. Because when God plants his spirit within you, when God puts a new character within you, the Bible says that we are new creatures and there's no, that's, not a, that's not just a fluke that it says that. It actually says that God's planted his divine nature within us and that divine nature contains all of these qualities, not just some of them. Now, as I look at the news, as I watch TV, as I read uh, uh, internet articles on the, on the, uh, about things that are happening in our world, I see constant conflict, don't you? I mean, you look at Egypt... Now, and all the turmoil that's happening over there. And regardless of the type of government, 
We see conflict all over the world, conflict and turmoil. And there are a number of different types of governments in this world. They're not all the same. You know that, don't you? Let me run through a few of them with you. Democracy is probably the one that everyone puts up their hand and says that's the best type of government in the world. And democracy literally means a rule by the people or where the people govern. Okay? So everyone, everyone actually you know, loves the idea of the people actually having a say in what goes on. So that's a democracy. And that, and that democracy is an idea. Okay? The question is whether democracy can actually work, isn't the story? Because the next type of government is called a republic. A lot of people don't understand the difference between those two things, but there are no pure democracies in the world. Because as soon as you start to get more than a few people, okay, they can't possibly have a say in everything that goes on. So then what you end up having is what's called a republic. Because a democracy is an impossibility as a political system. All democracies, things that we call democracies in this world, are really republics. And that's where you, rep you actually elect a local representative to represent you in the government to make decisions. That's a republic. Otherwise, everyone would be rocking up to the uh, to Parliament House and saying, I want it this way and I want it that way, and that's impossible. So most of the, of the democracies in the world are actually republics. And then you have an aristocracy. An aristocracy is where the people are ruled by aristocrats. And aristocrats are generally either wealthy, they're the wealthy ones, or the intelligent ones, or the educated ones. And what they do is they rule the people because they are, have either more power or more intelligence. Dictatorships. A dictatorship consists of a rule by one person or a group of people. And very few dictators admit they're actually dictators. They almost always claim to be leaders of democracies. And a dictator may be one person, such as Castro in, uh, in Cuba, or Hitler in Germany, or a group of people, such as the Communist Party in China. And this we come to the thing called a democratic republic. Ever heard of that term? A democratic republic. Well, Almost every place that's called a democratic republic is neither democratic nor republic. But in fact, is normally a dictatorship. It's neither. But they use, the, they use that term to actually smokescreen what's going on. And China's a bit like that. The people elect their officials okay, to go and represent them in the uh, thing, but it's all rigged because it's only one party. There is, no, there is no accountability one way or the other, and the people are told what to do by the, a group, regardless of, which, regardless of which person you actually elect. It's always the same thing going around and around again. So, and finally, there's a monarchy. And a monarchy consists of a rule by a king or a queen. Now, there aren't many monarchies left in the world today. True monarchies. You see, we know about the Queen of England, don't we? The Queen of the British Commonwealth. But she doesn't really rule, because England itself, the country that where, she, where she resides, is actually a republic, in a sense. It has a Westminster system. The people rule, and they elect their own leaders. So she's only there as a figurehead. And most countries in the world who have kings, um, really, they've been reduced down to just a figurehead. But the Bible says that 
We belong to a kingdom. And there is a king. And regardless of what type of political system we see around the world today, none of them actually work. None of them work. I mean, we live in a country called Australia, and we appreciate living here, and we, and we actually have it so much better than most other countries in the world. We should be actually thanking God <laughs> 24 hours a day because of the freedoms we have and the liberty we have and, and the wealth that we have, and we often take it for granted. We have a government that's fairly... It's not tainted as much with corruption as the other governments in the world are. We have a fairly uh, uh, independent judicial system. We have police that are generally, you know, not tied in with, uh, with, uh, with underground gangsters and things like that. So we generally have it good. Not perfect. We, we have it pretty good. And we have probably, I'd say, one of the best. But how happy is the average Australian with their, their government? Would you say that people are very happy with our government? Not that happy with our government? Cynical about our government? Yeah. It seems if the better the system, and we are in one of the best, believe me, the better the system, the more people have, the more discontent they actually are with the political system and the people who represent them. I mean, how many people trust politicians in Australia? No. The average person will actually tell you they're in it for themselves. They don't care about me. And it doesn't, doesn't matter really who you actually elect. It's always the same. And, and if you think about it, we have a two-party system in Australia. And how much difference is there really between those two? There isn't that much. When, you really, when it boils down to it, there isn't that much difference. Whether you have one or the other, they work within certain parameters and constraints. And those constraints are actually, over, there's a lot of overlap with those things. It's not like, like voting for a capitalist government and a communist government who'd be at opposite ends of the spectrum. These guys are actually right there around the middle. Well, there might be some, some slight variations, but there's very similar, okay? They're very similar. But the other thing is that when we elect a government, 50% of the country isn't going to be happy, are they? Regardless of who we elect, whether it's Labor, and the Conservatives aren't going to be happy on the, on the right side because they don't want the Labor in. And if the Liberals are elected, 50% of the country is not going to be happy with, <laughs> with them either. So regardless of what the system is, there's always unhappiness with it. But the Bible says that when God's kingdom okay, is realised, that everyone's going to be happy. And if we look at, if we look at this, if we look at the, uh, the, the message of this particular passage, it tells us what a wonderful kingdom this will be to be a part of and what a privilege it will be. I mean, and today we're going to be looking, I mean, we looked at a few of these things, but look at uh, verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 29. I want to show you what type of king we, we serve. What type of king, and uh, not only we serve now, but what he will be like. Luke 12, 29 says, And seek not... You got that? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. 
For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now look at verse 32. Fear ye not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, most of the times that people are unhappy in society is when they feel as if they don't have a say. There's no ownership on their part about what's going on. Things that, things, uh, decisions are made, things are done to them, they're not happy about them it's because they feel as if they've had no part in it. But you know something? God's kingdom is so different to everything else that we know. The Bible says that God is willing to give us the kingdom. Now, I can't fathom that. It's his. He has full sovereignty and right over his own kingdom. The Bible says it's not just his will to give it to us. He takes pleasure in it. And he will take pleasure in giving us the kingdom. How that occurs, I don't know. But I'm looking forward to it. I think that's rather exciting. Because it means that every person who is a part of that kingdom will feel as if they, it belongs to them as much as they belong to it. But we also find in the following verses of chapter 5 that he delights in giving comfort to his people. He loves to get things right. The Bible says that he will give them the earth as well and fill their hearts with their desires and longings. And this is extremely exciting news for us. If this doesn't excite you at all, if you have no longing for this type of kingdom, then you're too settled here. You're settling for too little at the moment. And this is the, the, the problem with Christians. They look at the world around them and they see there are certain things that might be enjoyable and they settle for those things. But there is so much more that we need to look forward to. Because if we get too settled over here, we forget that there's a lot more to come. And if we get too comfortable here, we forget about what God's called us to do, which is to be ambassadors in this world, which is to share the gospel in this world, which is to be the light in this world, the salt of this world. That We are to be the ones that make a difference in this world, and God said it wasn't going to be easy for us. This is why so many Christians fail in their walk, or they, they struggle in their walk, because they think that, they are meant to be citizens here. That this is all there is to life. And that's why they give up. Because when things start getting hard over here, they forget that there's something at the end that they should be looking forward to. And I've shared this once, probably twice with you before. Everything in life that's worth getting takes effort. Very few things in life that come free or easy are ever really that good. They often contain uh, things attached to them that you pay for later on. Anything that's worth keeping in this world takes effort. Your relationship you have with husbands and wives and children, aren't those relationships worth it? But tell me, is there effort involved? Of course there is. It takes a lot of effort to maintain a relationship. The relationship we have with God is ultimately of value, of the greatest value, and that takes effort. And it's the same thing with being a citizen of God's kingdom. In this life, it's 
takes a lot of effort. But it's because we are citizens of his kingdom and we will have our reward and all the things that we've longed for at a future date, but not now. And God says, now you will be persecuted. You will be condemned. You will not fit in. And unless you have that desire for the coming of Christ, unless you have the desire for God's kingdom to come, which is what the, the Our Father is, thy kingdom come, that should be our desire. You will fail here. You will not fulfill God's purpose for you here. So the exciting news for you and me is where we see brokenness, we know that God will mend it. Where we see turmoil, God will bring peace. Where there is suffering and pain, God will bring healing. He is a king by all accounts who loves his subjects and clearly shows it. No longer will the principles of this fallen world prevail over the weak and the innocent. See, it's the weak and the innocent in this world that always are the victims. No longer will it be the survival of the fittest. No longer will it be the strongest or the ruthless that rule over the innocent and the weak. God will set everything right and will govern with complete and utter love and concern for his people. And those who are citizens of that kingdom will reap the benefits of calling him their king. You see, there's a massive difference that's coming. Complete turnaround from what we're used to. And these characteristics of the kingdom should be displayed by the citizens of that kingdom. The citizens of that kingdom will display and possess, as I've mentioned, all these characteristics from the time that they receive that citizenship. And when do you receive your citizenship? When you bow the knee to the king of that kingdom. When you accept the sacrifice that was made for you and God puts his new nature in you and says, they're your papers, you are now a citizen of my kingdom. And God puts his nature within you. And today I just want to focus on one of those things, and that's mercy. Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, what is mercy? A mother once approached Napoleon, seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied, that the young man had committed a certain offence twice, not once, and that justice demanded death. The mother replied, but I don't ask for justice, I plead for mercy. And Napoleon replied, but your son does not deserve mercy. Fair enough. Doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy... It would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Now that simple story explains to you what mercy is about. Mercy is undeserved. Undeserved forgiveness. Not deserved. And the woman, had, the woman understood the, the proper use of the word. 
when she was pleading for her son's life. I'll give you a definition. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or to harm. I think that's a good definition. Because if you have the authority to punish someone for something they've done against you and you don't do it and you hold back and you forgive them rather than actually unleashing your wrath upon them, that's mercy. And I like the way one, I'm not sure who, who came up with this, but there is a difference between mercy and grace. And mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. They're the opposite. But they complement one another. God's nature is merciful. And Jesus displayed this perfect mercy when he walked the earth. As with the previous Beatitudes, as with the previous verses, Jesus epitomizes this thing, absolute, this, this trait, this characteristic perfectly. Was Jesus merciful? Oh, yeah. Jesus was merciful more than we can even explain. It was his mercy that brought him here to take on our sinful humanity and to release us from the bondage of sin and the penalty of it. Jesus knows that our present state doesn't have to be the last word on who we are. When God raised Jesus from the dead, death no longer had the last word. And see, this is the thing about mercy. Mercy is hinged with hope. Psalm 103, I'll explain this a bit more. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Why is God merciful? Why? He doesn't have to be. God could be the perfect judge when something goes, when we sin, God could judge immediately and he'd be fully justified doing it. There'd be nothing wrong with it. Why is God merciful? I don't have an answer to that. Love is, why is God loving? We could ask the same thing about all of God's wonderful traits. He doesn't have to be like that. We know God is, 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 um, is a perfect judge, but yet he withholds his judgment, yes, because of love, because of mercy, because of patience and kindness, and all these things we could actually ascribe to him. And then he says... That he asked us to be like him as well. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 35 with me for a moment. He says, but love ye your enemies. Yes, M, it has to do with love. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest, 
for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. So he's our example and he wants us to imitate him and be like him. So therefore, we need to love. We need to be patient. We need to be kind. But where does it come from? How is mercy? Why would I be merciful to someone? What good does it do? Does it help them if I'm merciful? Oh, it lets them off the hook, doesn't it? But does it do anything? And I think it does. I think when God reveals his mercy, what it's linked to is hope. If someone does something bad against me, okay, and I let them off, and then the next day they come and do it to me again, and I say, I let them off. And then they come and do it to me again. And I get to a stage where I say, what is going on? What do I do with this person? Do I let them have it? Or do I forgive them again? When I forgive them, what, what's linked to that? Yes, is love, but there's hope. There's hope that the person will change. And that my mercy will affect them in a way that they will, it will cause them to reflect upon themselves and that God is somehow doing a work in their heart that they won't do that again in the future. That God will, that mercy has a work within them. That God can work inside them to change them. That's why when, when Peter said to Jesus, well, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Probably would have freaked Peter out a little bit. So it means I'm, I'm to be merciful always? Yeah. Because when you stop being merciful, there's no more hope. What you're saying is, I have no more hope for this person. I've given up on them. Do you understand? Mercy is linked to hope. And this is what I really want to emphasise this morning. That when we stop being merciful to people, when we say to, when we say to someone, all right, you've messed me around too many times now, I've given up on you. What you're saying is you've given up. And you, have, you hold no more hope for that person. That God can't do a work in their heart, that you can't affect them, that you can't do anything to influence them in a positive way, and that person is utterly hopeless. Do you know why Judas hung himself? Because he felt it was hopeless. He despaired. Do you not think that if Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, came before him and said, can you please forgive me? Do you not think that the Lord would have forgiven him? Do you think he would have said, no, you've done it now? He would have forgiven him. But Judas gave up hope in himself. He gave up hoping in Jesus. His view about Christ was so, was so little that he did not expect to be forgiven. So he hung himself. And there are too many people in church, too many people in this world that give up on themselves. They lose hope for themselves. But then there are Christians who give up hoping for them as well. There's, <clears throat> there's a story of the Good Samaritan. Most of you would know that story. 
And that's a great story about mercy. And I won't read the whole story out because it's going to take us a bit too long. But the beautiful thing about the Good Samaritan, and at the end of it, Jesus asked, you know, which person actually showed, you know, to be a neighbour to the, um, the person who had been beaten up by the robbers. And the person who was, uh, who was uh, answering said, he that showed mercy on him. He that showed mercy on him. So mercy has to do with taking pity on people who are in need. Okay? But the, the good story of the Good Samaritan has a little bit more depth to it as well. It's not just being merciful or being helpful to people that are in need because a Samaritan and a Jew normally didn't get along at all. There was, all, there was always a bit of animosity between those two. So when, when, when this person answered and said, he who had mercy on him, he understood very, good, very well that it was an interaction between two enemies. That the Samaritan was merciful to the Jew. He didn't have to be. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Because mercy means... Possessing a forgiving spirit towards those who sin against you and those who you would not normally want to associate with. Romans 12.14 says, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. You know what that means? Condescend to men of low estate. In other words, don't think yourself to be higher than other people. And when someone walks in that door who doesn't look right, talk right, doesn't dress right, doesn't act the way you do, doesn't speak the way you do, don't think of yourself higher than that person, but rather condescend to them. And it doesn't mean to act like them. What it means is don't think of yourself more highly than them. Assuming yourself to be lower. Let's continue. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you. Live peaceably with all men. Now that's, that's a bit of a hard ask sometimes. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, in, if uh, thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I often, uh, as it were, uh, when I was a, a younger Christian, when someone was, uh, was against me, I used to try to be overly nice to them. And people would say, well, what, are you, what are you doing that for? Like, you know, what are you going out of your way for that person? He hates your guts and you know, he doesn't want anything to do with you. And I, my answer used to be always, I'm heaping coals on his head. Right? Now, heaping coals on someone's head is... If you, if you think about the term, it's actually judgment. All right? Heaping coals on someone's head, his, someone's head means that you're actually, you're, if that person doesn't repent and, and eventually come around, I'm going to leave that to God to judge. Right? And God's going to be the one who, who judges them. But I used to take it in, in the, the other way, which, which was, I'm heaping coals on their head because 
they, they won't be able to understand why I'm being nice to them. Right? And it will cause them to change. And that's right, that's true too. Because kindness and gentleness and hope in someone, when they, they're losing hope for themselves, actually causes a person to change with themselves. And that's, and I'll, I'll talk a bit that, about that in a minute, but that's what mercy is about. True mercy release, frees you from, from the bondage of being unforgiving, of having things against people, but it also frees the other person as well. That was epitomised by, if you look at, you know, so when Stephen was being stoned, you don't have to turn, turn with me there, I'll just read it out to you. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had uh, said this, he fell asleep. Now tell me, and the Lord was exactly the same. While he was being crucified, in the midst of being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. <coughs> That's merciful. Because Jesus, at any moment, could have called down a legion of angels, destroyed the whole lot of them, but he didn't. And God continues to be patient and merciful to everyone. Merciful, being merciful is not, is not a usually a, an admired trait in our society. Someone who is merciful is often accused of being a doormat. You let people take advantage of you all the time, don't you? Because you let them always off the hook. It's being a doormat and not facing up to reality. Or of being easily taken you know, advantage and, uh, and, and people conning you. So you come out looking like a fool sometimes if you're merciful. But as I've mentioned, to be merciful means not giving up on the other person. It's refusing to give up on the other person. It's believing in all your heart. I'm going to be merciful again because I believe that God can do something in this person's life. And, and I will play that small part in that by being merciful. Merciful means not just giving up on the person. It also means not giving up on God. Because God is the one who changes people's hearts. God is the one who makes a difference in people's lives. So when I give up being merciful to someone, what I'm saying is, God, I don't believe you can do anything in this situation. That's what it means. It means that God, you, you're saying, point blank, you're saying, God, you have no ability to change this person's heart. I'm giving up on him, therefore I'm giving up on you and what you can do. But let me ask you a question. Does God give up? If God had given up, I wouldn't be a Christian today because it took me more than 10 years to become a Christian. If God had given up, I wouldn't be standing before you today. And I'm sure that most of you here today understand that God didn't give up on you. And even when we fall and when we get ourselves in situations that we regret, if we believed in our hearts that God would give up on us, what would, what would happen to us? So being merciful is linked not just to hoping for that person and not giving up on hope, but it's actually hoping in God and continuing to trust God and his ability to be able to change people's lives.
Ray would probably hate me for using him as an example. Or can they call him? There was plenty of prayers that went up for Ken for a long time. And God continued to work on his heart until that day when he actually gave his life. Now, what if his wife had given up on him? What if we'd stopped praying for him? Because even now, next week, he's going to be baptised. Mercy means not giving up on people. It means being patient. And it means trusting that God's, God can do wonderful things. And that's the message of the cross and the resurrection, isn't it? In the worst despair, in the worst possible time, when Jesus was crucified and they, they'd buried him and, and it was all lost, God came through. And if God can come through, if God can defeat death, then God can change the people that we love. And he can change us too. You see, in the end, in the end, we're all the same. We're all broken in some way. We're all hurting in some way. We've all been hurt by people in one way or another. The real question is, how do we respond to that hurt? How do we, what do we do with that pain and that suffering? If someone offends me at church, there are a couple of ways I can handle it. I can forgive the person and hope for the best for them and encourage them. I can do that once. I can put a limit on that. And say, man, the third time, he's going to be struck out or she's going to be struck out. But I know my father's, my father's heart is not like that. And that he doesn't strike me out on the third go. He doesn't do it to me. So why would I do it to people who are the same as me, who I'm no better than? If I think that I can actually put a limit on how many times that I should forgive one person or the other person, what I'm saying is I'm actually a stricter judge than God. When he was so merciful to me. Now that's a pretty bad position to be in. Because if we understood really how merciful God was to us, we should be the most merciful people in this world. People should be taking advantage. We should allow people to take advantage of us every single day. And we should be continuing to hope for them. But instead, oftentimes, we, we allow that to hinder our, our view. That's where mercy comes from. Mercy does not come from what's inside me. Mercy comes from God. God shows himself to be merciful and the only reason that I can be merciful is because he was merciful to me. Being merciful isn't just pretending that something didn't happen or allowing the person to just go on sinning without our caring for it anymore. 
There is a purpose to being merciful. And it goes well beyond just letting someone off a hook. Being merciful means providing room for that person, for God to work in their life and hoping for them and helping them to move forward. Mercy isn't about giving up, but about hoping for transformation. Mercy doesn't mean being a doormat to people, but it means understanding that you were shown mercy first. And that's the bottom line for the whole thing. True mercy grows out of an experience by experiencing the mercy of God. If you have experienced the mercy of God, then you will be merciful to other people. It's inevitable. Where you are shown no mercy, you will struggle to show mercy. So, I'd like us to understand just a couple of things. That mercy requires work. Everything, everything important takes work. But mercy requires a lot of work. It requires effort and energy. And it, it actually absorbs suffering. You can't be merciful without suffering. But the beautiful thing about, about the way God helps us to grow as people is actually tells in the Bible that we grow through suffering. And if we don't suffer, if we try to alienate everyone around us who ever says the wrong word or does something wrong and we continually run away from these things, we can never grow as a person. True growth requires that you deal with things. And even though those things may hurt, the work that you put into those things and mercy is one of them, actually helps you grow stronger as a person and grow more into the image of Christ. Now, I want you to just think about him as an, as an example. For 30 years, he had to restrain himself from revealing himself to the world. He was the son of God, and yet he worked under his father. And then when he started his ministry, he collected a ragtag group of men Fishermen and tax collectors and all types of guys with bigger problems than probably you or I have here today. They were zealots. They were people with, with they were, let's call them an eclectic group. They really were an eclectic group. And if you had to sit them all down in one, one, one place together, they would never have sat down together if he wasn't the one pulling them together. Do you understand me? Matthew, a tax collector, would never have sat down with John, the apostle, or Peter. Most of these guys wouldn't have spent any time together. But the amazing thing that we find with Christ is that he was able to bring these guys together who never belonged together. In any sense of the word, they would, they would never have spent any time together or gotten to know each other. So he was a conduit for mercy. But the other amazing thing is that after three years of him teaching these, this group of men, even after three years, and he, 
He made a few statements sometimes where he says, you know, how long must I bear with you? How long must I put up with you? You guys aren't getting what I'm telling you. I came here to die and you guys are, are arguing over who's going to be sitting in my right and my left in the kingdom. Don't you understand what's going on? You had mothers getting involved in this thing, trying to, you know, trying to argue for their sons, missing the whole point sometimes after three years of teaching under the best teacher this world had ever, had ever known. These guys still didn't get it. And Jesus would say, how long must I put up with you? But you know what? He did. He didn't give up on them. He didn't say to you guys are a bunch of misfits. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. Out you go. I'm going to get some new people. Smarter guys. He didn't. He put up with them. And he helped them to get to where they needed to be. And this is a story of mercy. You see, he was merciful to that group of, of, of men who followed him, who had left everything but who had a huge amount of problems in their lives. He was merciful to them day after day after day. For three years he did it. He never gave up on them. And then in the end, he died. They abandoned him. They ran away all in different directions when it, when it came to the crunch. And he still didn't give up on them. And that's the story of mercy. And that's how it all fits into the gospel, you see. We saw, I'll just close off with this, uh, with this passage. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy. And we, the only reason we're here is that he is merciful to us. I'll close with this, with this story. There was a little boy visiting his grandparents on their farm. And he was given a slingshot to play with out in the woods. And he practiced in the woods, but he could never hit that target. He struggled to get that target with that slingshot. And he got pretty discouraged. And as he was heading back for dinner... He saw, uh, sorry, as he was walking back, he saw Grandma's pet duck. And just out of impulse, he let a slingshot fly, which got the duck in the head and killed it. So he missed his things for the whole day, and then that last shot, he didn't think he was going to get the duck, but he got it, and he killed it. And he was quite shocked. What do I do with the dead duck now? So in a panic, he hid the dead duck. He hid the evidence in a pile of wood. But as he was doing that, he looks around and his little sister's watching him. She'd seen it all. Now we're in big problems. After lunch, the next day, Grandma said, Sally, which was his little sister, can you come and help me wash the dishes, please? But Sally replied, uh, Grandma, John, uh, Johnny told me that he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Then she, she turned around to her, little, to her brother and said, do you remember the duck? So Johnny did the dishes. Later that day, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing and Grandma said, I'm sorry, 
but I really need Sally's help to, make, to help me make supper. Sally smiled again and said, well, that's all right, because Johnny told me he wanted to help. She whispered again, remember the duck? So Sally went fishing with her uncle and Johnny helped make the dinner. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and his sister's chores, he couldn't stand it any longer. Actually, it was, it was amazing that a little boy would uh, last days. He came to his grandma and confessed. He confessed his sin and said, I've, I killed your duck. And grandma knelt down and gave him a hug and said, sweetheart, I know. You see, I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing anyway. And because I love you, I forgave you anyway. And I was just wondering how long you would let your little sister make a slave of you. That's a story about not having mercy, taking advantage. The grandmother had mercy. But that's a story of two kings. Okay? There is one king, there is one ruler, who all he does, he loves to enslave. Whatever you've done, he likes to throw back at you. Wherever you've been, he wants to constantly remind you because he wants to keep you bound. He wants to keep you trapped in your past. And his whole desire is not to have any mercy upon you because if he doesn't have mercy on you, he has you bound. Then there's the story of another king. One sovereign who loves mercy and wants his people to be free from their bondage and their sin. And he, and he loved mercy so much that he actually judged his own son so that we could be free. And he desires us to be free now. You see, oftentimes, if we make a mistake, if we sin, if we struggle with certain things in our lives, we give up on ourselves before he gives up on us. We're the ones who actually judge ourselves and we actually um, have less mercy than he does on us. There's a beautiful passage in Romans that says, if God, why we were enemies, was able to send his son to a cross to die in our place and make us his children. If God was able to do that, how much more will he keep us saved? How much more will he continue the process? You see, oftentimes we look at salvation and we say, you know, I, I put my faith in Christ and, you know, he did all this wonderful thing for me. He, you know, he, he gave me eternal life and now I just struggle all the time. And they feel sometimes that God's abandoned them. But the real truth of the matter is, if God could turn you from an enemy into a son, if God, while you were an enemy, sacrificed his only son for you, then how much more will he love you now? How much more will he continue to make sure that, that you will continue on that path? 
Let's remember to be merciful. Because the kingdom of God is all about mercy. And if we lack mercy, remember how merciful God was to you and me. God bless you. Thank you.